0: Hey everybody, welcome to another Ithaca Bound podcast episode. I'm your host Andrew Schiestel, and this is the podcast where we explore history and mythology in the Mediterranean basin. Today I'm joined with Dr. Gerald Hodding for a conversation about the Umayyad Caliphate's hegemony in the Mediterranean basin. Dr. Hodding is a British historian and Islamicist. He is emeritus professor at SOAS University of London based in the UK. He has written numerous publications over his career, including the book, The First Dynasty of Islam, the Umayyad Caliphate, AD 661 to 750, which was published by Routledge. And he joins the show today from London, England. Welcome to the call, Gerald. Thank you, Andrew. So what was the Umayyad Caliphate, Gerald?
1: Right, very briefly, uh, the Umayyad Caliphate is the name that we give to a particular dynasty of Caliphs that ruled in the Middle East and the Mediterranean world from about 661 until 750. Uh, The Caliphate, as many listeners probably know, but it's probably worth going over it again, the Caliphate was an institution that came into existence Uh, in Arabia, in 632, following the death of the Prophet Muhammad. Uh, When he died, he left no arrangements for succession to to himself. He was both a prophet and a political ruler at the same time, a religious and a political ruler. Uh, He left no arrangements uh, about who should succeed him, and his followers met in something of a crisis, and came up with this idea that uh, one person should be named to follow him. And they called that person the Caliph, or in Arabic, the Khalifa. Uh, In English, we call the institution the Caliphate. In Arabic, it's the Khirafa. And that institution lasted from 632, the death of Muhammad, Uh, Well, many people would say it never died, but it certainly existed as a real solid institution down until 1258. And the Umayyad family, who we're talking about today, uh, is the first dynasty to get control of the caliphate. There were four caliphs before the Umayyads, but they belonged to different families. Uh, They were each elected in different ways. Uh, The Umayyads uh, all belong to the same family. They belong to the family of Umayyad. Uh, In English, we call them the Umayyads. In Arabic, they're the Bani Umayyad.
0: So what was the uh, key event or events that took place then that caused the Umayyad caliphate to come into power?
1: It came into power as a result of a civil war. Uh, between 656 and 661. Uh, The the first caliphate was based in in Arabia and there were a number of squabbles about who should be the right caliph. When one caliph died, there were squabbles about who should be the successor. Um, In 656, a man called Ali was appointed to the caliphate in Medina, but he'd come into, into possession of the caliphate Uh, in rather murky circumstances. The previous caliph had been murdered. And some people said that Ali uh, was involved in the murder. Ali himself said, no, he hadn't been. Uh, But it led to enough um, obscurity and confusion uh, around the caliphate for an opponent of Ali's, a man called Ma'awiyah, who was in Syria, uh, to come out to challenge uh, Ali for the caliphate and there were various battles and uh, events that happened over about five years until eventually ali himself was murdered in, in by this time he had moved to iraq he was murdered in iraq and uh, ma'awiyah the ruler of syria were, the way was left open for him to take over the caliphate himself
0: and i want to um clarify uh, Gerald, so you had mentioned that there was four caliphs prior to the Umayyads, and um, they were all from. And correct me if I'm wrong or didn't hear correctly, but for all from different families, it was not a it was not a dynasty. So, so, yeah. so why when someone does a, a a a search on the topic on let's say Google or different different um, sources. So there's the term the Rashidun Caliphate. So can you can you um, can you uh, share a, a bit more? This episode's not on on the Rashidun Caliphate. We're talking more about the Umayyad. But can you explain that? Why when um, people do searches, there's also uh, a, a caliphate out out there that comes up called the Rashidun uh, Caliphate.
1: Sure. The the Rashidun are the first four caliphs, who, uh, as you say, Andrew. Um, weren't all members of the same family they were all companions or they had been companions of Muhammad while Muhammad was alive they had been closely connected with him Uh, some of them were were even relatives to him either by blood or by marriage they called the Rashidun because in the Islamic tradition they are regarded as rightly guided at least by the Sunni Muslims they're regarded as rightly guided uh, they, that means that they ruled according to the uh, ideas and the regulations that they had known from Muhammad himself. So they have a sort of legitimacy uh, which comes about because of their connection with the Prophet Muhammad. Uh, that ends when, they are, when, when that period comes to an end and the Umayyads take over. The Umayyads were, um, although they were more distant relations of Muhammad, Uh, They weren't closely connected to him. Uh, The the importance, though, of of the Rashidun period, the period of the first four caliphs, is that it was under them that the conquest of the Middle East had taken place. When Muhammad died in 632, uh, the state that he had founded was uh, confined to Arabia. But under the Rashidun caliphs, uh, the... Arabs moved out of Arabia. The Arab Muslims moved out of Arabia and began to spread out uh, into Iraq and Syria and Egypt, eventually establishing their rule in those areas. Uh, so that by the time the first Umayyad Caliph uh, took power in 661, his name, by the way, was Ma'awiyah. By the time Ma'awiyah took power, um, there was already a large area of the Middle East and North Africa which was under Arab Muslim rule and as Caliph Ma'awiyah took over control of that area.
0: So uh, scholars will reference that period and the state of four Caliphs before the Umayyads as the Rashidun Caliphate? They
1: usually usually call it the Rashidun Caliphate or or in English the rightly guided
0: Caliphate. So when the Umayyad caliphate came into power, what was, can you describe uh, geographically um, what their territory would have been demarcated to in, in what they inherited when they came into rule?
1: When, when Ma'awiyah um, came to power, the, the area over which he had real control did not extend much. Well, he had, he had Syria. He had Iraq and the northern parts of Iraq, which we often call Mesopotamia, although Mesopotamia is a vague term that people use often to demean all of Iraq. Um, He had Egypt and he had the western parts of Iran. Uh, the, The Arabs had begun to move into Iran as well. Um, Iran and Iraq were closely linked Uh, they had all been part of the Persian Empire before Islam and the uh, one of the achievements of the Arabs when they moved into the Middle East was to destroy that uh, Persian Empire and they had begun to take over the lands that that Persian Empire had administered so we're talking about Syria Iraq Egypt uh, western parts of of Iran and gradually moving into North Africa as well
0: okay, can you speak about um, Gerald wh- where the capital or capitals in this period of time uh, would have been um, would have been placed?
1: yeah um, the Umayyad capital, the the center of uh, Umayyad rule was Damascus um, Jerusalem was also important for them, and of course there were other towns in Syria as well. But it was really Damascus that was their their base. Um, but paradoxically, Syria was not um, not economically or socially the, the centre of their of their power. Uh, they needed the resources of Egypt, often called the breadbasket of the Mediterranean. And they needed the resources of Iraq, which is also an extremely fertile and uh, agricultural center. uh, Syria was was quite poor in in resources compared with Egypt and Iraq. Um, The reason why they settled in Syria, though, rather than Iraq or Egypt was because it was there that the tribes that they relied on for their military power uh, were based. So that so that was really very much why they were based in Syria.
0: What's known, Gerald, about in uh, this conversation um, is more on the, the the Mediterranean basin, so the hegemony that the Umayyads would have had in the in the ba- basin. Uh, what What's known about um, what their overall uh, goals or, uh, perhaps we can use the term foreign policies were, were as it relates to the Mediterranean ba- basin, and then and then let's let's chat next about um, sort of and this might come up in your answer, but uh, about how that uh, demarcation of territories in the Mediterranean changes over time.
1: Right. Perhaps um, I should begin by saying that although they, they were based in Syria, which is, of course, on the Mediterranean itself. Um, over the course of Umayyad history, uh, the lands further to the east, Iraq and uh, events in Iran as well, played a much more important part for the Umayyads than did those around the Mediterranean. I suppose it's partly because We, as Westerners, uh, and particularly, of course, in the context of this podcast with its focus on the Mediterranean, uh, see the Mediterranean as as being very important, and it, of course, is. Uh, But for the Umayyads, I think it's true to say that it was of secondary importance. It was the lands further to the east that really dominated their policies. Um... They began to get involved in in the lands around the Mediterranean from Egypt. Egypt, uh, as I've already said, was important agriculturally and economically. It supplied food to areas of the uh, empire, the Umayyad Empire, um, that couldn't support it, couldn't support themselves. And, but from Egypt, the Arabs began to move westwards. North Africa. They did that very early on. There's a man called Ukbay um, bin Nafi, who is a semi legendary figure who's said to have uh, gone from Egypt, crossed all of North Africa, got to the uh, Atlantic shore of Morocco, and threw his hands up to God and said, Oh God, you know, if only I could have gone further, I would have done. Um, he he's a, he goes down in history as uh, the first one to establish Arab Muslim power over uh, North Africa. In the um, first forty years or so of Umayyad rule, say up to about seven hundred, between say six sixty and seven hundred, um, the rulers of Egypt were gradually extending their rule over what are now uh, Tunisia, Libya, Algeria, Morocco. And of course, then from um, at the beginning of the of the eighth century, in 711 to be precise, they crossed over from Morocco to uh, Spain. And that started the, uh, the Arab rule in the southern and central parts of Spain, the area that the Arabs themselves call Andalus, and which is commemorated of course in the spanish province today of andalusia
0: what do you think the caliphate's interest was in northern africa more more broadly so from from east to all the way to the to the west what what do you think their interest in in expanding their territories were and as they did this expansion was it largely un- undefended or were there um major um w- wars or battles or key conflicts that you want to highlight mm.
1: um the interest of you my answer, in north africa is i i suppose it arises simply from from two facts what well, one is that they the arabs at this time were very much um uh, uh an expanding conquering group of people. They would come out of Arabia, um, conquered the central lands of the Middle East, and there was nothing to stop them. So they they just carried on. That was their their way of life. North Africa was, um, I suppose, inhabited by two different types of people. They're on the coast in the the big cities, uh, Tunis and uh, places along the coast they there were still um remnants of what you would call roman civilization uh christianity was still strong there um the vandals um the the uh, barbarian people from europe had crossed into north africa from spain and expanded uh at the expense of the romans but there was a mixture of roman and uh, vandal uh, political control over the towns of the coast of North Africa. And those towns of course were were wealthy. And insofar as they were ruled by the Byzantines, the Byzantines were enemies of the Arabs. They had fought in Syria and they'd fought in Egypt. And there was no reason why the Arabs should not continue to fight them in North Africa. The other element of the population in North Africa is, of course, the Berbers, the uh, indigenous people of North Africa, among whom Christianity and Judaism had spread. Um, But these people lived a life that was not too different from that of the Arabs. They uh, lived in tribal communities and uh, many of them were nomadic. Um, So that the Arabs, although there was a lot of tension between Arabs and Berbers, um, eventually found that there was quite a lot in common between them as well. And the, the Berbers, when they came into Islam, when they joined the Arabs in this uh, great enterprise to conquer as much of the world as they could, uh, the Berbers uh, converted to Islam and became Muslims in, in, alongside the Arabs in, in Islam.
0: Uh, does that answer your... It does. Thank you, Gerald. Yes the um a couple of the groups there as well that you mentioned were the visigoths and um romans um is there is there anything in the in the in the records about how they how they responded um and i think and i guess more more broadly um as this expansion was happening through northern africa was this a, a case of many many people staying and uh, assimilating and incorporating into uh, the way of life of the Umayyad Caliphate, or is there a a, a lot of evidence? And, and maybe it's a it's a spectrum, and it falls somewhere in between. But or was there a lot of evidence of uh, displacement? So so people leaving those those areas.
1: Mm. Um, the the Berbers, of course, stayed. They, they really had nowhere to go. Uh Byzantines. Um, withdrew when they were defeated. They tended to withdraw back to Constantinople, to the lands dependent on Constantinople. Um, That's not to say that the cities immediately changed their character, um, but this is the period following the Arab conquest, the first two to three hundred years following the Arab conquest, when Christianity dies out in North Africa. as, as, As you know, before Um, Islam came. North Africa was extremely important in the history of Christianity. It's the place after all where St. Augustine lived and wrote his uh, City of God. And many other famous uh, early Christian thinkers and writers came from North Africa. But it was um, following the Arab conquest that that uh, Roman Christian civilization began to die out in North Africa. And was replaced by the Islamic one.
0: The people that chose to stay, the various populations. Um, what was the Umayyads' uh, official policy then towards governance for the the populations in in uh, northern Africa?
1: The Umayyads were mainly interested in collecting taxes. They. Um, they saw their subjects as the support for the Muslim-Arab elite. The idea was that, uh, at the very beginning at least, the idea was that uh, an Arab-Muslim elite would be uh, supported by the taxes of those that they had conquered. and. Um, Basically, that's that's what administration was. It was uh, raising taxes, using those taxes to support the army and uh, the elite who lived in Syria, uh, and of course the, the governors and the local uh, elite of, of the Arabs as well. Um, beyond that, there were, at the beginning there wasn't much interest in these conquered peoples. Uh, if you read the Muslim accounts of this early period of their history, you find very little reference to the conquered people. Uh, It's nearly all to do with what is going on among the Arabs themselves and their quarrels and their their friendships and their battles. Uh, Very little about, very little to give you an idea that they were simply a minority living among a majority population that was not Arab and not Muslim. Over time, that changed because over time, more and more of the conquered people began to identify themselves as Muslims. Uh, They entered Islam and that posed a problem for the Umayyads because as more people entered Islam, the, the, the question was, were those people going to be taxed? Uh, they, they, they now claim to be Muslims and to have the privileges that other Muslims had, uh, among them the privilege of not paying taxes. But of course, if the Umayyads allowed that, that would shrink the taxation base on which they depended uh, and uh, the finances of the state would fall into huge disrepair so this was the main, one of the major problems that the umayyads faced over the 90 years or so of their rule and it became more and more a problem as time went on because more and more of these uh conquered peoples entered into islam they became muslims
0: so so where, is there evidence then that uh christians were were living in these territories, if we're talking, let's say the Northern, Northern Africa in this period of time where there are uh, Jewish people. And uh, what was the, um, what was Umayyad's uh, response to these various um, religions then?
1: Yeah, um, we know of, uh, I, I should say that the evidence for um, the major Christian cities, so what, what went on there, so far as I know, the evidence is very limited and the dying out of Christianity in, in the towns, the dying out of Roman Byzantine Christianity, is a, it didn't happen overnight, but it's a, a process that seems to have started quite quickly. And um, we, we just don't have very much evidence about how or when, when it was taking place in, in the towns of the Mediterranean. Among the Berbers, um, as I say, we we do hear about Christians and Jewish Berbers before Islam. Um, Some early on in the in the Umayyad period, there are revolts by the Berbers against the Arabs. Um, As the Arabs are extending their rule over North Africa, we hear of um, the Berbers fighting back. And sometimes the leaders of these Berber uh, of the Berber resistance, sometimes they're identified as Christians, sometimes as Jews. Um, so, uh, but eventually, eventually the Berbers themselves uh, uh, seem to have become entirely Muslims. Uh, that didn't necessarily um, make them good friends with the Arabs, but they they were they did become Muslims quite quickly. Um, so we don't hear all that much about Judaism and Christianity among the Berbers following the Arab uh, conquest of North Africa.
0: Um, and so that uh, I, I have it in my, in my mind and for all, for all the listeners. So when we're talking about the Mediterranean uh, basin more in this, in this conversation, uh, at the apex of their hegemony, um what what would be the territories that the Umayyads would have had hegemony of in in the Mediterra- Mediterranean so kind of from that Levant um you know all the way to the Iberian Peninsula can you describe what what those uh, territories would have been
1: Right by by the sevens, by the 730s um, the Umayyad rule extended all the way across the southern shores of the Mediterranean, right across uh, Egypt and North Africa, up into the southern and central areas of Spain, uh, over what we now see as the Spanish border into southern France. Narbonne came under um, Arab Muslim control for some years. Um, They also had invaded Cyprus, they had control over Cyprus. Um, from time to time, they had control over Crete, although that didn't finally come under Muslim rule until uh, until later after the Umayyad period. Uh, places like Sardinia had some um, Muslim Arab control over them. Although, um, again, it's mainly after the Umayyad period that places like Sardinia and Sicily come into the uh, arab muslim sphere
0: in this period because you mentioned some islands there uh in this period how how would you consider their um faculty as seafaring people
1: um they did pretty well consider considering if you, you think of arabs as people who ride horses and herd camels um and live in pretty dry um desert places um of course, they didn't, uh, they didn't turn themselves into sailors, and at least not overnight. But what they did, um, what they were able to do was to use the ships and the sailors that they found in the Mediterranean um, for themselves. They, uh, they seem to have had a, a policy of farming this out to local governors. And say the governor of Egypt would um, big ports there would be uh, Alexandria and Damietta, And the governor of Egypt would look after those ports and the ships. And he would recruit sailors to man those ships. He would use some of the income from Egypt to finance the building of ships. And, of course, the big thing about Egypt is that it doesn't have it very much wood. And so all your, all your wood has got to be brought in from abroad, uh, from places like Lebanon. All of this is organized And um, pretty soon, the Arabs uh, had control of the Mediterranean. Um, They uh, defeated the Byzantines in sea battles. Um, They were able to besiege Constantinople because of their mastery of the sea and and they're getting control over the uh, Bosphorus Straits. Um, So, yeah, I mean, it's one of the, the big big surprises of this, this period is the way in which this, um, nomadic people from the desert, um, managed to turn the Mediterranean into their lake, I suppose something that lasted until the rise of the Italian Republic much later.
0: And you mentioned governors and that, that was a question I was going to ask. Um, so, We've been chatting about these different areas in the in the Mediterranean. So, did they did they divide administratively their territories by uh, provinces? I'll use that 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 term. Um, and I'm uh, uh, and there might be a uh, obviously a, a term in a different language that in Arabic that they would have used. Were they dividing the? Um, the territory up into provinces. You mentioned the term governors. So can you speak a little bit about that, how administratively they divided up the, their, their, their territories in, inside of provinces and, 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 uh, and governors and how that, that would have worked administratively?
1: Yes, um, the, the caliph in Damascus appointed governors to the main provinces of the empire. So there was a, a governor in Egypt, a governor in Iraq. And those um, main governors would then appoint, often, would, often they would do it, often the caliph himself would do it, would appoint um, governors to uh, the smaller places. They, would, they were very often dependent on, on the bigger ones. So that the governor of Egypt, for instance, would um, often appoint the governor in Cairo, one. Um, in Tunisia um, or in um, somewhere like Tangier, um, they would be dependent on the go- Sometimes they would be dependent on the governor of Egypt, sometimes on the caliph himself. Uh, but of course, the, the empire was so huge by, by this time, um, and means of communication compared with, with modern times were, were quite primitive and slow. Um, it's one of the um, great miracles of, of the period, I suppose, that somehow um, this huge empire was able to hang together through this network of governorships. Um, occasionally, a governor would, would try to kick over the traces and oppose uh, the caliph, but that didn't happen as often as you might have thought. Uh, and usually, you know, the, the governors remitted their taxes to the central government in, in Iraq. Um, uh, Sorry, in in Damascus. Um, One of the big examples of course of this is following the Umayyad conquest of Spain, um, which you get the impression was carried out pretty much independently by by local people. First of all, by this guy Tariq who crossed over from uh, Morocco, into Spain, and then by his boss, um, who was the governor of North Africa, a man called Musa or Moses. Um, he once Tariq had established himself in Spain. Musa went beakling off after him and said, "Hey, look, you—you uh, know—you've done this without my permission." But you'd have the impression that neither of them were particularly dependent on the caliph. But then. Um, having established themselves in Spain and achieved some quite big victories over the, uh, over the, the Visigoths in Spain, um, having done that, they were recalled by the caliph in Damascus. And you might have thought that they, they could have said, oh, blow you, we're here in Spain. We're quite happy here. We're not coming back. But no, they obeyed the caliph and they went back Uh, and were humiliated when they got back for political reasons. Um, It it just shows you, you know, that this network of uh, the caliphate and the the governorships that were dependent upon it were, it was really quite effective. And uh, it's not easy for us at this distance to understand quite why it was so effective. Why was it that somebody in Damascus could tell somebody to come from Cordoba in Spain and that person would do it.
0: And for the, everyone listening uh, an entire episode um, ha, has uh, occurred in the in the past on uh, some of those events that uh, Dr. Hodding is uh, describing there so on April 9th 2021 an episode was published with uh, Dr. Brian Catlos on the Umayyad Caliphate gaining hegemony in in Iberia. So Gerald you mentioned um, it sounded like there was a lack of uh, awareness from the central government that that invasion from northern Africa to the Iberian Peninsula was going to occur, but then in other respects it sounds like there was quite a bit of coordination with these various provinces set up and the governors and the tax collection and such. How would you describe what the level of coordination was In these regions um, during this period of time, there's quick, you know, quick math. I guess the the caliphate was in power not a so a hundred and a hundred or so years, so six six sixty one to seven fifty, so almost. I guess that's almost a hundred years, right?
1: Yeah, about 90 years,
0: something like that, yeah. yeah. so it's not it's not a few years, but it's also not several centuries. So how would you um and they're probably inheriting certain things that would have existed uh from the the Rashidun period, but how how would you reconcile that and describe what you feel the level of coordination was within the government?
1: Um it very much depended on individual Caliphs and individual governors. Um, sometimes they were related by family ties, sometimes not. Sometimes they had uh, very strong links, um, and sometimes not. Um, the caliphs, I said, you, you have the, the impression from reading the, uh, the accounts of the period. You have the impression that the caliphs um, were quite careful in their appointment of governors. They had to um, take account of local conditions, particularly of the uh, factions in the army that existed in different parts of the empire. And they chose their governors either to favour the dominant faction or else to keep a balance between rival factions in a particular province. Um, This seems to be the the sort of main consideration that they have when they're appointing their governors. Um, There are one or two governors who who stand out as being um, particularly close to the caliphs. Sometimes the governor of Iraq almost seems to be a second caliph, um, ne- ne- never claiming the caliphate, never making a bid for independence, but doing things like minting coins locally, um, always with the caliph's, ne- uh, the uh, always uh, in subordination to the caliph in Damascus, but nevertheless having having local mints and taking um, taking his own decisions about what's going to happen in the east. Um, I'm not quite sure whether that's what you were getting at by coordination, or did you have
0: something else in mind? Oh no, that's completely fine, Gerald. It was it was purposely broad. It's just uh, you know something a thought I had, right? Because I've heard I've heard that before that scholars believe there there wasn't knowledge of, uh, uh, beforehand with the caliph knowing that the caliph of the time knowing that in the eighth century. Um, the Iberian Peninsula would be invaded. But then on, other, uh, on the other side of things, it sounds like there's a lot of coordination. So I just wanted to hear what, what your thoughts were on that type of broad question.
1: I, I, th- I think we have to remember, of course, that these lands that the Arabs conquered were lands of ancient uh, civilization and uh, political power so that the Arabs didn't come into a, a wilderness. They, they didn't have to build up Their administration from scratch, in many ways, they simply took over what they already found. And that included things like um, personnel, coins, uh, languages that existed already there, the languages of administration like Greek and Persian, only gradually were they changed into Arabic. So they weren't, um, you know, the Arabs were not building up from the ground, as it were. They, they, they had plenty of things that they inherited when they moved into the area.
0: Is anything left in the records about how much the uh, caliphs during this period of time would have, would have traveled uh, with, with a focus on the, on the Mediterranean? Is there any sense of if uh, caliphs traveled uh, much in these areas?
1: So far as I know, they, they never did. Um, occasionally, you hear about a caliph going to Iraq. Um, but the only other place that they go to is down into Arabia, to, uh, to Mecca and Medina. Um, I don't know of any... Uh, sometimes they, they lead expeditions, military expeditions, up into the north against the Byzantines um in the sort of southern turkey armenia that sort of area but um no i don't know of any caliph who went to even to egypt uh
0: coinage working our way into some closing questions gerald um you mentioned coinage earlier so was coinage um uh, decentralized so was coinage uh, fragmented in that there was different uh individual coins for the given areas a lot of it was already in existence when the umayyads came into existence and um to what degree did a uh, did a centralized type coinage currency system exist
1: um the, the history of, of coinage during this period is quite complicated and i'm not sure that uh, i'm a complete master of the subject but as i understand it um the early in the early period, before say the 690s, um, most of the coinage in circulation was already existing Persian and Byzantine coinage. And what the Arabs would do would be to simply stamp something on the coins, uh, say the name of God or the name of a governor, um, to indicate, that they had taken taken it over, but they still basically used the same um, dinars and dirhams, the uh, drachmas and denariuses that were in circulation uh, when they arrived. Then in the 690s, you get a period of uh, reform when the state seems to take on a much more Arab and Islamic character And it's during this period that the caliphs introduce a coinage that is distinctively Islamic. Um, The big thing about it is that it does not have, as all previous coinage had, it does not have uh, pictures of a ruler or a picture of anything, in fact, on it. It's um, an iconic coinage. Uh, It has only inscriptions, um, statements of the Islamic faith. There is uh, no God but God, and Muhammad is the messenger of God. And this becomes the model for Islamic coinage from that time onwards. Um, I think that it wasn't the Umayyads who were the first to introduce that. They took it over from some rebels who had introduced that sort of coinage previously. Uh, But it was during the 690s that um, the Umayyad state began to mint that sort of coinage. And as I say, that really became the model for all later Islamic coinage until modern times when uh, some new types have been invented.
0: When and why does the Umayyad Caliphate's hegemony Uh, in the in the Mediterranean basin, and and your answer might be tied to their caliphate uh, uh, completing their their reign. But when and why does their hegemony uh, in the Mediterranean basin end?
1: Uh, it, it ends because their empire is um, is overthrown. It's, it's overthrown by a movement that starts not in the Mediterranean, but as I said earlier. Um, in the areas which, in many ways, were more important for the Umayyads in the east. Um, a, a revolt starts in uh, the far northeastern corner of Iran. A revolt that's motivated partly by discontent in the army there, partly by discontent among the uh, subject populations, those who were under Arab control. Uh, These two movements sort of uh, unite with one another and uh, in 649 and 650, the armies march from Iran into Syria. Uh, They defeat the Umayyad armies in Iraq and then in Syria and the last Umayyad caliph flees. Oh, this is interesting actually. You said, did they ever travel? This is, uh, I said, I didn't think they ever did. Um, this is one, one exception that now comes to mind. The last Umayyad Caliph fled to Egypt, where he was hunted down by, the, uh, by his opponents and killed. And the um, opponents of the Umayyads, the, uh, eventually they appointed a new dynasty of Caliphs called the Abbasids. Uh, they took over the Caliphate from the Umayyads. They took over all of the lands um, that the Umayyads had ruled apart from uh, Spain. Um, and a survivor of the Umayyad family, as, as you must have covered this already in, in that other podcast, a survivor of the Umayyad family made his way from Syria over several years, made his way to Spain. And there he was recognized as the commander in, in Spain. He's the Amir the or the commander. Uh, of the Arabs Muslims in Spain. So they, they never came under Abbasid control in Spain. They remained loyal to the Umayyads and eventually, of course, they created their own Umayyad caliphate in Spain. But, uh, all of North Africa did come under uh, a Barcid rule, at least for some years.
0: Yeah, that's a fascinating story in and of itself. The, um, uh the family member who fled and made his way, uh, Raman Rahman the first, and then eventually founded the Emirate of Cordoba. Yes, yes. So maybe that's a segue to a closing question, Gerald. Um, how, how would you describe, so they had, they had a lot of territory in the Mediterranean basin in this period of time. Um, we chatted about places like Damascus. So present day Syria, uh, we chatted about, uh, the Egyptian area, that, the whole northern African area, um, so more broadly speaking, um, the Iberian Peninsula. Um, how would you describe um, how their, the influence that they had in that period of time, which was, it looks like, just short of 100, 100 years, how would you describe um, how their influence in, uh, lives on today?
1: I suppose most obviously in the buildings that that survived from that period. um, That's the most obvious way. That's the way that if you go to those countries now, you see uh, the remnants of that. You see uh, the Dome of the Rock in Jerusalem. You see the big Umayyad mosque in Damascus. You see the mosque in Kairawan in Tunisia. Um, These these places all date from the Umayyad period. You see the the mosque... uh, of Amr ibn al-As in uh, Fustat, that is old Cairo. The, these are all major monuments surviving from the period. But of course, they are simply the tip of the iceberg. Um, what's really going on during this period is that you're getting the transition from the Middle East that had, uh, the Medi- and the Mediterranean that had been ruled by Rome uh, and further to the east by Iran uh, you're getting a transition from that uh, and from the, the culture that flourished at that time. You're getting a transition to a new um, religion and a new culture, um, the Arab Islamic uh, culture. Um, of course, this doesn't happen overnight. Um, it doesn't happen simply as a result of the Arab conquest. It takes a century, more than a century, fully to develop. But what I said about people coming into Islam uh, in North Africa, that of course applies over the whole of the Umayyad Empire. And it's you getting this mixture of Arabs and non-Arabs all coming in together to create this new religion and new civilization uh, of uh, of Islam and uh, Arabic culture. Uh, that's The Umayyad period is the period when all of this is taking place so that at the beginning of the period, you know, the Arabs are a small minority ruling over a non-Arab, non-Muslim majority. By the end of the Umayyad period, we don't have precise figures. But you can can say for certainty that with some some certainty that Arabs and Muslims formed a really major part of the population by the end of the Umayyad period. And with that, went this new um, civilization and new religion.
0: It is always such a pleasure speaking with you, Gerald. Thank you for coming on the show and sharing your knowledge today.
1: It was a pleasure, Andrew, and I hope uh, your listeners enjoyed it.
0: So again, everybody, the book that I mentioned at the start of the episode that Dr. Hodding wrote, and it's very germane to the conversation that we just had, The First Dynasty of Islam, the Umayyad Caliphate, AD 661-750. to I'll drop a link to it in the show notes on the Ithacabound.com's associated subpage to this episode. Gerald and everybody listening, as always, wishing you a marvelous journey. Bye for now.
1: Bye for now. Thank you.